Welcome to episode 125 of the Football Fitness Federation podcast. This episode is with the head of sports science at Apollo V2, Michael Macri. Michael came on to talk about um, his lessons from starting in the industry so young. We spoke about improving worth to decision makers at clubs. We spoke about how we should prioritise data we collect and how to interpret it in the right way. And then we... A big part of it was how we spoke about making an impact and the differences between the coaches that make a real impact at clubs and the coaches that don't. We spoke about the future of data collection and sports science as well and some, um, not just where Michael thinks it's going to go, but where he thinks it should go um, as well. So loads of great information in this one. We also did the quick fire questions at the end of the podcast too. So I hope you take plenty away from it. As always, please get in touch and let us know what your biggest takeaways were from the episode and please give the episode a share as well. Give it a share on your Instagram, your Twitter, um, send it out to different coaches that you think will benefit from the episode and the things that we speak about. And if you haven't done so already, please take two minutes to head over to iTunes and leave us a review. I really appreciate everyone that's done that already. Um, And you can also, just a reminder, as well as watching, uh, sorry, as well as listening, on Spotify, SoundCloud or iTunes. You can also watch this podcast over on our YouTube channel as well. And we are getting a few more people watching the podcast rather than just listening to it. So head over to YouTube, just search Football Fitness Federation and you'll find um, all the most recent podcasts over there. So I hope you enjoyed the episode with Michael and here is episode 125. Welcome to episode 125 of the Football Fitness Federation podcast. I am delighted to be joined today by the head of sports science at Apollo V2, Michael Macri. Michael, how are you? I'm good, mate. Thanks, mate. How are you doing? Hey, I'm good, thank you, mate. Cheers for giving up your time. We've had a couple of conversations about what we're going to talk about on this podcast, and I think we've got some really good stuff to cover. But thank you for uh, sparing some time for me in your super busy schedule. No, I appreciate it, man. It's like, you know, these sorts of things don't happen often. So um, it's always a joy to come on and, and chew the fat with people like yourself. Awesome, mate. Well, I've just mentioned your job at Apollo, and we'll go into that in a little bit. But do you want to just take us back through your career so far? Yeah, so um, it's been a pretty unique one, but I find that those journeys that are unique to yourselves are the ones that actually, you know, they, they're the ones that push you in all sorts of interesting directions. But uh, I'm first-generation Australian, so I'm very proud of my Italian heritage, and I think that's got a lot to do with sort of like my work ethic and my morals, and I feel that that's important, um, sort of like moulded into me as a coach in this industry, right? Um, but, you know, as everyone that's worked in the industry, played sports, swimming, uh, state and national age level, cross-country, athletics, soccer, I was a sporting buff. I love sport. And being from Australia, you know, like we're a sporting nation, so... Um, and again, playing sport, I wanted to do something in sport, wasn't sure what I wanted to do, but uh, I got into the undergrad at the Australian Catholic University. I was very young for my year at school, so I finished school when I was 17, and my first few months of university, I was 17 as well. It's sort of like, what are you going to do? And the really cool thing about the ACU undergrads is that they 
it's very practical. They, they, part of it is, Hey, go out and do your strength conditioning accreditation, go and do some, um, shadow coach. So, you know, whether we liked it or not, they pushed us to do sorts of things. And one of it was getting the ASCA Australian strength conditioning association accreditation level one. So I was like, yeah, let's do it. Cause we had, we had to, as a requirement, um, took part of that and sort of never looked back. The advice was, you know, you're 17. Now, if you do three years full time, you'll be 20. You'll be out of uni, but you'll have zero experience and probably no chance of finding a job. So I took that to heart, started contacting everybody under the sun. Uh, my old swim coach, Graham Brewer, um, just did some interning in the dry land for swimming, coaching swimming. Uh, also contacted a coach called Grant Stolwinder, who was coming to Sydney and forming like a super squad for Australian Olympians after after Beijing. So I was able to shadow some really cool people, um, Eamon Sullivan, uh, Libby Trickett, so these world-class swimmers, and also take that knowledge back to the age groupers. So started very young in individual sports, swimming and diving, was able to do stuff with N-Swiss, AIS, moved into the rugby codes, rugby union, rugby league, both at a semi-professional level. Got my first big break with the South Sydney Rabbitohs in 2012. So initially it was a an internship and that was the culmination of three years of you know volunteer internships you know the unwritten rule in this industry right you've got to uh, pay your dues you know do the do the, the hard yards for free so you know multiple internships at a time working multiple jobs got my break at uh, the Rabbitohs and never looked back because once I got that internship they must have liked me enough because six months later they were offering me a job um, my title was sports scientist and head trainer which was just a fancy thing of fancy way of saying that I was a jack of all trades. I was everything. Sports scientist, assistant SNC, helping with um, any rehabilitation with those that were, you know, pulling out of, uh, you know, pulling out of certain drills and training, you know, gear steward, equipment manager, facilities manager, psychologist, nutritionist, everything, mate. So you know how it is. And that was, I was 21, 22 when that happened. But it was a phenomenal experience because it was a proud club in the NRL, owned by Russell Crowe, good old Uncle Rusty. Um, but it was a club crying out for success. So there was a lot of pressure. But it was on the up and up, that team. They had underperformed for a, a number of years. Michael Maguire came in and molded staff and a team to sort of be battle-hardened and ready to launch at a, you know, a, a title, um, you know, in 2014, that actually happened. We 2012, 2013, we, we got to the second last hole, the penultimate hurdle, uh, preliminary final, but unfortunately lost those two games. Um, but 2014, won the premiership. Uh, following year, went to the UK, playing St. Helens in the World Club Challenge. We were very lucky, you know, fortunate to, to be part of that. It was a revamped World Club Challenge, uh, won that title. And then 2016 was sort of a year where a lot of people think I'm crazy. It's like, hey, you're 26. You've done a lot in such a short period of time. You know, some people don't win titles in their entire career. And I've been here, what, first internship gig at 18, 26, one, as some people would say, oh, you've won it all. You're at the top of your game. But I was like, I, I would like the growth. And there was no growth at that club. Um, again, being a young man in an older man's industry is essentially what we are. Um, you can't sort of sit back and, and wait for things to happen. you got to make things happen. That's what I did. So I, I left the bunnies. Um, I, was, I was at peace with that. It was my decision. I wanted to leave on my own terms, came to the States, 
spent a few months at Sparta Science in California. That was a good opportunity because it allowed me to get, you know, have boots on the ground. Um, got a phone call not long after uh, to come on board at Baylor Football, which was great, a big college in the U.S., in Texas. Uh, after just over a year with Baylor, I moved to Austin to be the director of athletic performance for the new Major League Rugby competition here in the States, a uh, team called Austin Elite Rugby. Um, and then about nine, ten months later, uh, had a conversation with my now boss, uh, Dave Hancock, and said, hey, do you want to jump on board with us at Apollo? We're doing some really cool things. And I was like, you know, it took a little bit of convincing, but it was pretty much like a, a, a done deal because I, I sort of known about Apollo for a few years and I'd known Dave for many years before that and it was like you know what it's time to be part of uh something special particularly with someone as genuine and upfront as dave and i thought hey let, let's do it so it's my, my little story so far and i know we'll probably cover this in some of the questions that we'll go into shortly but do you want to just anyone that's not heard of apollo um do you want to just give a brief sort of outline of, about what you guys do and i know we are going to go into some detail in a little bit yeah, for sure. So um, Apollo is, you know, the brainchild of uh, Dave Hancock and Tony Strudwick, you know, through Dave's time at Leeds United. Uh, he always had um, sort of the use of multiple systems and technologies um, in sport, but he was, they were in silos, you know, he was using one system that export to an Excel spreadsheet here and so on and so forth. And being in Leeds, and Leeds were obviously that successful at the time, but Prozone was in Leeds as well. So they sort of, he sort of formed a relationship with uh, the founder of Prozone, Ramon Vargan, and they sort of put their brains together along with Tony to develop basically a system which was able to be a centralised warehouse where you can plug all your information in there in one hub, but cross-reference data from all sorts of areas of the high-performance ecosystem. So it doesn't just include, you know, S&C medical, but also includes game stats, the coaching, the tactical and tactical, right? So essentially you've got this uh, centralised platform where you can also automate any reports through visualisations like Tableau, Power BI, and the ability to not only just amalgamate your data, but to input it quickly so you're saving time because a lot of people forget because it all comes back to you. Like everyone goes, oh, I'm in this industry for the athletes. But then they forget that the athletes are the reason why they're there in the first place. It then becomes, in some cases, a little bit like, well, I'm here for me, right? So I need to impress my, you know, employers like look at the skill set that i have so look how look at my fancy spreadsheets well, look i can you know talk about all this analytical jargon which makes no sense but it makes me look good which means it's going to add a few more dollars to my salary and i get that's your livelihood but at the end of the day improving your livelihood improving your salary more of that comes from actually improving the team and the athletes you work with right because if you win there's the benefits of it. If you lose, well, you're probably going to get fired because it's a cutthroat industry, right? Yeah. So Apollo yeah. is able to help people not only just analyze and collect their information, but interpret it within the context of their environment, which I believe is the most important thing about the data collection. So it's a really, and again, there's so many cool tools that the system can do. Um, but hopefully that was sort of like an elevator pitch and uh, people got enough out of it, but it, you know, We'll talk more about more about in depth a bit later, I suppose. Yeah, we will. We'll cover that. But we'll just go back onto you, mate, as well, because you sort of skipped past the fact that that you started in this industry. I know you mentioned your age. I think you said twenty when you were, when you landed uh, 
at the job at the Rabbitohs, is that right? Yeah, so the internship started when I was like 20 and then literally a month later I turned 21 and I was given the job in, or was offered the job, sorry, in August, September of 2012. So then my, my entire first pre-season with the Bunnies was I was 21 and then my first season, it was almost like, it was because like NRL season like proper starts in March. It was almost like it's my birthday and then the season starts. So, <laughs> yeah, it was, it was crazy. But, yeah, uh, pretty young age. But I, at that time, like I said, like I had, in, I had interned and volunteered and done part-time work for almost three and a half, four years prior to that. So I was almost – not that I was old, but it wasn't like it was my very, very, very first – I like the culmination of that three and a half years of, you know, unpaid volunteer work, you know, uh, having lunch, dinner, breakfast, whatever, in your car, driving from one end of Sydney to the other, getting home at times from my job. You know, don't be a hater, but I worked at Toys R Us, right, because it was the only job that was open and doing all-night shifts, right? So I would work from, like, say, 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock at night to literally at 5 o'clock in the morning, get home, sleep a few hours, have to get up again to do the next internship or, you know, do my uni work because I did my university undergrad over a seven-year period to fit in all the extra curricular stuff that I was trying to do, right? So, um, so yeah, it wasn't just like, hey, you know, you got, again, you get lucky, but you've got to take the luck with it and and make do with what you got because, yeah, I got a bit lucky, but I worked my ass for it too. So I'm I'm not going to sort of pull that down pretty lightly because it it was tough work, man, tough work. And I know there's a lot of people that have been there, but still, like, you know, until you actually experience it, you don't know just how tough it can be. If we put this into a bit of perspective in terms of being 2021, like if we relate that to the Premier League, essentially that's like landing one of the top Premier League jobs at such a young age. In, in If we're comparing, obviously, the different sports, different leagues, but that's essentially the comparison. So with that, what would you say you've got a bit, there's got to be some mistakes in there. There's got to be some big lessons at that sort of age. What comes out from you? Hundreds, hundreds of mistakes. So I want, the funny thing is like already my attention to detail, my, my time management wasn't as good as what it could have been. It got better as I, as I got on, but it was relatively good. Um, My work ethic. So I already had that, but I made a million mistakes and as a result i learned a million lessons right so it wasn't like i learned them before i um i made it but in terms of like the the first lesson i ever learned was from grant stolwinder who was the swimming coach i told about talked about earlier but he mentioned uh to me you know put this in your bank the kiss principle it'll be the best thing you ever learn keep it simple stupid and at the time it was like you know you're a young kid you're like oh okay but it, it, it appeared that the industry was quite complicated, right? But then as I went through my uh, career and as I'm going now, like the industry is not complicated at all. And what we do is not very difficult. Go out and um, work as a, a builder or a laborer and spend, you know, eight hours a day digging holes. That's hard. We have the benefit of turning up to work in shorts and T-shirt, in a gym environment, working with athletes in a sport that we love. So it's, it's quite easy in that regard. But, you know, we tend to overcomplicate things. So the KISS principle, number one, I've, I've never looked back. It's it's probably the most important lesson anyone can learn. Um, 
attention to detail, yes, I already had that. I'm the sort of guy that if people write an email or they write something, they, they send it to me and go, hey, does that look right? Or can you sort of proofread that? I have my own people as well that do that, but attention to detail, like that's so important. Um, listen is Listening is the biggest form of communication that you can possibly have. Too, too many people tend to speak before they actually listen and think about what they want to say. So be a sponge, I always say to people. Take everything in. Don't be the reactive. Someone says something and then you've got to bite back in and basically have your say because more often than not when you do that, you're probably wrong or you're stepping, you know, you're going to be stepping on toes, but you're probably not seeing the full 30,000 view about what's going on. Um, you got to be thick skinned hundred percent. You got to be thick skinned. Like I'm, uh, I tend to be at times like a little bit more sensitive. You know, I've got, I'm the youngest in my family, I've got two older sisters. Uh, I've got a bit of a sensitive side to me as we probably all do, but you can't let little things, uh, take it to heart too much um and again like i'm a 21 22 year old trying to hold my ground against people that are 40s 50s that would like to try and walk all over me that would like to try and control me that would like me to be a yes man but that's just not who i am i'm not a yes man if i do not uh, so imagine you're in um a team staff meeting right You've got the head coach saying, blah, 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 do you agree? You know, 99% of those people in that room will say yes because if they say no, oh, I'm, gonna, I'm challenging the head coach. I'm trying to keep my job. I don't want to try and, you know, get in trouble. You know, if I purely disagree wholeheartedly with what that is said, I will put my hand up and say, you know, respectfully, coach, I don't agree and this is the reasons why. Uh, I'm that sort of person. And that people might think, oh, yeah, that's you're a pain in the ass for being that sort of person. But at the end of the day, if everyone's a yes person, then no one's ever going to get better. No one's ever going to achieve. And those, and I wholeheartedly believe that the teams that are typically underperforming, they have too many yes men or yes men and women in those organizations. That's why they never achieve the heights. And again, you know, that, that's part of it. But um Again, loyalty doesn't exist. You can always be replaced, as no matter how good you think you are, how many jobs. Again, at the Rabbitohs, I did a million jobs. You know, it was often that the head coach would say, "This is Michael Macri." When he's introducing me, this is Michael Macri. He he does everything. You know, a nice <laughs> a nice sentiment. But let's be honest, I did everything, but they're still functioning pretty well up without me, right? So you can always be replaced, and that could be in the form of them replacing you with. 10 other people, 10 other people that might be earning more than you, but nonetheless, they'll get the job done without you. So that's a big yeah. thing. Um, don't BS anybody. Don't be fake. Don't BS people. People will realize that very, very quickly. Now, being genuine, being honest, that might initially, you know, call people the wrong way, get them offside. But I think as you get older and you state the facts honestly and genuinely, um, people appreciate that, right? Because there's too many people. Like I worked with uh, an individual. He was a musician. He was a, um, been in a band for 50 years, right? And he, you know, was a bit stubborn, you know, but being very famous in a, in a big band, um, you can imagine how many people wanted a piece of him, right? Mm -hmm. And I then come along as this, you know, 30-year-old saying, okay, we need to be ready at this time to train and that time to train and this and that and that and this because I was rehabbing him, right? And we've got to be here, we're going to be there. And he was like, whoa, whoa, 
you're demanding things of me. You're not saying yes to me all the time. I, he liked that about me, the fact that I said no to him, right? And I think when you say no and you're honest, people appreciate that more. Like, don't just be a pain. Don't just go against the grain for the sake of going against the grain. But, you know, do it to help. Um, and then the biggest thing is when you don't BS people, you have to admit fault. If you don't know something, just say, I don't know. Yeah. Otherwise, you know, that can sort of lead into a few. Yeah. I have some stories later I can tell you about where I, there was a personal thing I said. I, I tried to hide to some of the players at the Bunnies and they sort of caught on. And all they wanted me to do was just tell me this personal thing. When I told them that, they were like, oh, okay. And then it was never mentioned again. You know what I mean? But they hounded me for weeks and weeks and weeks. And I was like, it's personal. It's between me and, and my makeup. But they just wanted to know about it. Then they got me up in front of the team and said, Macri, Explain to us this. And they, they called me. They had pictures and everything. They're like, show me what, what's going on here. I was like, God damn it. Okay. I told them and then never again. No one ever mentioned it. So that's that. just be straight. And then um, also you have to have a happy medium between being one of the boys, if you will, and being a professional. Because you can be one of the boys, but you can't be too in. Because then you are just one of the boys. And when you want to get them to move their ass, they won't listen to you. Uh, but you can't also be that, you know, author authoritarian professional that distances away from the group. You've got to be in the middle. So um, there's some of the lessons. And in terms of, like, mistakes, I think the biggest one is overthinking. You can't overthink things. It's just like, you know, here's a plan. Have a plan A to a plan D, if you will. Um, if plan A doesn't work, keep going down the line. And if plan D doesn't work and you've exhausted all your options, well, then you better hope that you'd be able to adapt because that's the that's basically the nature of sport, adapting, going from A to B to C to D to E. You know, if, if, the, if the field is, is uh, watered out because it rained all night or if it's snowing or if, you know, someone's left their boots at home or whatever, adapt. So let things, uh, you know, you learn those things on the fly. Um, but I'll tell you what, like I said, I made every one of those mistakes a billion times before I learned. But then what happened was uh, I never made them often again after that. So I think one of the main things that sticks out for me, though, is, is the whole thing around being a yes man or a yes woman and, and not being that and, and trying to challenge things. But I think the thing on that as well is you, you can do that in different ways, can't you? Because you mentioned there about people thinking oh, you're a pain in the ass or whatever it is. But if you have a conversation in a respective way, there's you can be um, very influential about what you're trying to get across, can't you? But you can oh, also yeah. go the complete other way and just feel like you're being rebellious and you're just trying to be a pain, basically. So I think that's really important, isn't it? There's different... Yes, you can challenge things 100%, and that's what you're there to do. But at the same time, that you can go about that in different ways as well. One that can be effective and one that's probably not. Oh, for sure. It's like, like I said before, don't just disagree for the sake of disagreeing, right? Say, hey, I respectfully disagree, but this is the reasons why I disagree. And more often than not, the other person that you're having that discussion with, you probably won't resolve those differences. You're probably like, oh, I understand, but I still believe in this. Sweet. But it's about... It's almost like being a lawyer in a way, right? You've got to get the facts. You make your argument. At first, you don't succeed. You try, try, try again. And especially if you're dealing with a head coach, you everyone knows that you don't often have the wins that you want. You might get a 
two or three or four wins a season, you know. But when you get the wins, hold on to it for dear life and make sure that you don't make a mistake because you'll never get that win back again. An example would be, you know, trying to implement something that, is new to a coach in the program, but the coach is like, oh, we don't really need that, right? You go to that person where this is what we want to do. So I'll, I'll tell you about a situation. So a situation where I wanted to bring something in um, at the bunnies. It's like a heart rate recovery test. Um, a bit more about the science, but we were trying to figure out like, you know, how fit are we? You know, how well are we adapting to the stimulus? Because the NRL changed their rules quite often, in, you know, whether it be less time in the scrum, less stoppages, less time on the line dropout. So this, the game speeds up. So the, the level of fitness is changing. It's, it's less of an aerobic sport, but more of a repeated sprint type sport, right? Um, but again, it's like bring this in. And again, everyone does the traditional long, slow training. You know, is, that, is that part of, you know, getting fit? It, it has its place, but in, in this day and age, like you need to get more of the high-intensity stuff, right? And the heart rate recovery test was one of those to figure out, like, is what we're doing, like we're recovering well, we fit. Um, so we put it in, the head coach was like, eh, I don't want to do it. It's, it's going to add time to this session. So you go back and you go, okay, let's do a bit more research. Let's, let's uh, refine the process, go back to them again. Okay, it's only going to take five minutes extra and we can put it into the warm-up so it doesn't actually feel like it's an addition. It's just part of the warm-up. Head coach is like, nah, it's, it's going to take away from my stuff what I want to do tactically and technically. Okay, fine. Then you wait, you wait, you wait. You might come through um, a, a string of losses and the head coach has exhausted all options and you put your hand up and go, hey, well, what about my idea? Uh, and then the coach goes, okay, let's give it a go, right? Boom. There's a, there's a, there's a winner for you. Now you have to do a whole bunch of things that it, it, it runs smoothly. So explain it to everyone. Okay, this is the reason why we're doing it. Do that before the session. Okay, get into the team and boys, we're doing something new today. It's called high recovery test, blah, 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 blah. Then you get onto the field, you know, quick transition, explain to the boys, okay, this is how it works, okay? Um, and all sorts of stuff. Everyone get involved. Everyone's on the same page. It works. You get the data. You present it well in a way that the coach understands, right? Present to the coach, how do you think that went, blah, blah. If the coach says fantastic, let's do it, then you got to make sure that every single time after that, it's 100%. Because if you don't, the coach will be like, no, we're never doing that again. And all of a sudden you've lost it. So the next time you come to the coach and say, hey, I've got this idea, he'll be like, no, no, remember last time? It didn't work, so piss off. So that's in my way, that's how you would go about, you know, with that discussion of, you know, challenging and bringing facts to the table. And I think that segues perfectly into the next bit we're going to talk about, which is improving worth as practitioners mm. through decision makers. Mm. And this is a really interesting one because it's something that we're all battling to do all the time. And you've mentioned some great stuff in it so far in regards to um, earning trust and earning buy-in from players, from coaches, from even people above, like the decision makers, the financial guys. Like, where do you want to start with this? Because this is a big uh. topic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's massive, mate. But I think you got to start with people, right? The human element of our industry is basically the soul of the industry, right? So you just can't come in. And I, I did a, a lecture earlier this week to a group of master students, and I showed them a hierarchical model of a performance model that we use in Australia, or even just a performance model that you can use in college or whatever, no matter, no matter where in the world, right? And the model basically had was that you've got the head coach at the top. I believe head coach is king. They make the – ultimately, they're the ones that are going to be um, – 
helping you to make that actionable change because if they believe in what you tell them they will help you achieve that but if they don't well you're not going to make any change right mm. or at least not a big impactful change right you got the head coach at the top of the tree and then below is usually like a high performance or a director of performance that has the role of overseeing all the departments taking all the messages which could be you know countless messages and that way you only have one voice to the coach instead of having 10 or 20 voices to the coach right and i made the point of them saying okay as further you go down look at where the you know the sports scientists are performance analysts are even the assistant strength coaches, like they're right down the pecking order. It doesn't mean that they're not important. It means that they're probably not the person that's going to be listened to the most when an idea comes about. It's going to be a director or the, the, um, the head of the department, right? So the idea is in order for you to get those messages filtered up the chain, you need to build those relationships because not only do you have different people of all backgrounds, but you've got Strengthening, strengthening, conditioning people speaking SNC language. You've got medical people speaking medical language. You've got coaching people speaking coaching language, and they don't understand each other. They still speak English, but the language with it is quite varied. So if you don't understand how to communicate and in, in, interact with each of those people, well, then you're not going to, you know, get any buy-in. So people forget that we work with human beings. The fun nature it is we have all these cool fantasy technologies that spit out all this information. And then we go, please tell me the answer, GPS, spit out an answer. <laughs> how, you know, but it doesn't work that way. It just it gives us numbers. And then we have to find out, well, what does that number mean? And how do we tell that story behind what we're trying to achieve? And you can't do that if you don't know how to communicate. I always say the smartest or the most impactful people are those that can take sometimes very complex ideas and communicate it to various people of different IQ and EQ levels, right? They can all understand it. So that is, I, I believe, the you know, to make an impact, you've got to start off with the human element. Like you said, if you get to know who they are, you know, it doesn't have to be anything about sport. Hey, coach, you know, how's the family going? Or, hey, coach, what are you doing the weekend? Like, like small talk like that leads to bigger talk, and they start opening up, you know, because I think at the end of the day, people don't care about what you know. And I told I told them, the master students, I said, hey, you guys are clones. you got tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of, of exactly the same version of you, right? So if you have your version in a job, let's say Manchester United, they fire you or get rid of you. They just basically put in someone else that does exactly the same stuff that you do, right? The difference is, is that in order to be standing out, it's, it's you know, people, right? And, and understand the personality and building rapport with people. And I think that's so important. So you do that, you build their trust and you build their respect and then they'll listen to you. And that's sort of how I believe things can help to improve the worth. Um, I think another thing which is very important is once you have that ability for they, they trust and respect you, then it's our job to educate because coaches, um, I don't know if I really like using this term, but I'll use it because I know it's been spun out in the social media worlds and the Twitter spheres. But, like, you know, you can have PhD practitioners in performance, you know, PhD in sports science or PhD in strength and conditioning or physiology or biomechanics. So let's say a head coach of a sport or a manager, let's say they are a PhD of their sport, right? You know, just because I've supported 
uh, Liverpool, and hopefully that doesn't, you know, turn viewers away from. <laughs> oh no! We've just lost fifty. Just because I've supported Liverpool my entire life, and I've watched a lot of games of Liverpool playing, doesn't mean that I know the game of football, soccer. It means I've watched a lot of Liverpool games, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, Jose Mourinho, Jurgen Klopp, Sir Alex Ferguson, they know the game inside out. You know, they are the PhDs of the sport, right? So they, they've hired us, people like us, to basically communicate the information in SNC, in medical, in sports science, because, you know, if they, if they knew it, why would, they, why would we be even useful, right? Yeah. The idea behind it is they don't know what we know, right? Sometimes they probably don't even know what they do or they don't know, you know what I mean? But the idea behind it is we need to educate it. And I know a couple of years ago, the big, you know, Mediterranean Saudi quote that came out and says, oh, you know, we don't do weights. We don't lift weights because do you lift weights on the field? And everyone's like, oh, he's an idiot. And the oh, mate, S&C well, we're up in arms going, oh, it's sacrilege. But, like, did everyone st- take a step back and go, well, that's just because he said that because he wasn't taught any other any other way differently, right? Yeah. If someone had, yeah. he may have been, right? But let's say, okay, let's for argument's sake, say he just said that because that's what he knows. What was if someone over time that he trusted, educated him, said, "Hey, coach, you know, lifting weights can be useful because it can help reduce the injuries. It can make us more robust." If he had known that, do you think his quote would be the same? It could be. Don't get me wrong. And he might have he might have had a change of thought. So I think it's our role we don't do a good enough job of educating. And then and, and then the thing is when we don't educate, then we blow up when something like that comes out and you go, Oh, well, he should know better. But it's like, well, wait a minute. Is he a practitioner of strength and conditioning? No, he isn't. He's he's a football manager. So I think that's a improving our worth, we can do it in that way. The soft skills, the hard skills, you can learn to the day you die. But if you don't have the soft skills, you know, it's going to be a hard a hard slog through the industry, in my opinion. For me, this comes down to, and I like it when you spoke about speaking to like students and postgrads or undergrads even, I think it comes down to like building your brand. And that sounds a little bit cheesy, doesn't it? Uh, but yeah. I, relate, I relate it to business because I think like, if you think of like the Nikes, the Adidas, people like that, there's a lot of other people that, that sell trainers, sell clothes. They stand out and they stand out for one reason or the other. And I think to revert that back to practitioners, we have to stand out. And the way we stand out is being a, having a little bit, something a little bit different, the personal skills, how we communicate, and I look at companies like that and they do that. They communicate well. The, the quality is the, of the highest standard. I think we can take a lot from that, can't we? And we, I think mm. every practitioner has to think about that, building their brand. Like you said, we don't want to fall into the trap of being a clone. We want to be, I want to hire Michael because Michael does X, Y, and Z. And I know that he does X, Y, and Z, not the fact that he's just got these qualifications. Oh, for sure. And I don't want to touch upon too much about what what Dave's doing because like you know he he could he could write a whole you know novel series about his career but just because obviously I work with Dave and he's my boss and whatnot I just want to bring up the point where Dave in my opinion you know he's one of the best in the world at what he does and he's been doing that for over 25 years right but as a physical therapist um having his own you know PT company um people go to him and request his services, not because of that he's really, really, really good, because I'm sure there's other people out there that are just as good 
if not maybe better than Dave, right, um, in, in some areas. But they go to him because he's a very genuine, likable person, right? Like Brett Bartholomew, right? He's uh, now in the – he's got his own own business, own facility. All those players, the NFL players, they don't go to him because, again, yeah, he might live in a – like Dave and Brett might live in a nice location, you know, New York, wow, Atlanta – they're, they're nice locations. By the end of the day, you know, they go there because they like the person. And mm-hmm. if Brett or Dave moved away from, you know, New York and Atlanta, you know, respectively, and they went to L.A., Miami, or they went to Seattle, or they came to Austin, Texas, where I am, right, the players would follow them, yeah. right? Yeah. They, they, they don't go there because of, oh, this is the facility. They go there because of that person. I think that that's a big it's a big deal, right? It's like the whole where if a head coach leaves and goes somewhere else, he brings his people. He brings his people, yeah, because he's comfortable with them whatnot, but he likes his people, right? He didn't like them. He'd say, no, no, I'm going. And you <laughs> <See ya. laughs> it all comes back to personal side of things, the human element. I think it's uh, – and also on top of that, like the ability to – I call it coach speak, right? So the coaches bring their guys with them because those guys and the coach knows this, they understand how the coach speaks and the coach understands how they speak. So they, they get each other, right? So it's like, well, why would I go through the process of bringing in some other rando that I've never seen in my life? He might be really, really good, but he doesn't get me, right? Because you can be the best strength coach, best physical therapist, best sports scientist in the world, but if you don't, mesh personality wise well then you're going to have a hard time like these are people that are you're spending almost as much time if not more time than you spend with your own family if you don't get along with them well you know it's going to be a rough couple of years if that's where you're at you know what i mean so yeah great point just a very quick update on our online community so i just wanted to let you know and let community members know that Our most recent webinar, which was focused on the post-COVID return to play process, is now available to watch back on our online community. That is alongside our uh, previous webinar from Chris Barnes, which was based on sports science, the past, present and future. There's also 20 other webinars available on the community and 10 of our network meeting presentations so loads of amazing information on there as well Um, and as part of the community membership you also get access to our whatsapp group and our forum where we've had loads of great conversations going on recently about a number of different topics so if you're already a member make sure you log in and check out the most recent webinars that have been uploaded and we've got some exciting ones to come very soon as well if you're not already a member on the community you can sign up for a free month to see what it's all about by going to footballfitfed.com click the community tab at the top sign up there go through the full registration process and that will give you one month free on the community After that free month, if you want to stay a member and take advantage of all the um, discounts that are available and all the perks of being a community member, then it is only £4.99 per month going forward after that. So go and check it out, footballfitfed.com, click the community tab and sign up there. Here's part two of the podcast with Michael. We'll move it on, mate, because I'm wary of time. This is flying by. We're getting through uh, a few questions, but we'll move on because we said we're going to talk about data collection. We've talked about it a little bit, but also um, how to prioritise this because I know there's a lot of – you spoke about it a little bit before. 
a lot of clubs will take in a lot of da data. They'll have a, a number of different data points that they'll sort of collect. And you spoke about the important bit being what you do after that. But what I wanted to ask you was how, how we prioritize what we're focusing on. Because with so much out there, we need to be able to say, this is important, this is important. These are what we're going to prioritize and focus on. So what's your views on that? Uh, straight to the point, I'm going to say, like, there's too much paralysis through analysis. So less is more, right? Number one, um, if you like GPS, right, they can, they can give you hundreds of metrics. You know, in the sport of rugby, football, American football, like, do you really need to look at 100 metrics? Usually it's only like, you know, four to six that you really hang your hat on. So we need to get through that process of don't just look at everything, right? And, again, this is just my opinion, and it, it, it seems like it's common sense, but I like, I like there's, like, a bit of a process to it. So how I would go about it is, like, I, I think the, the collection to visualisation process should go something like this, where the first phase is, like, you're, you collect the data, right? But for some reason, it's like there's two types of people, and there could be more, but for the sake of this argument, I'm going to say this too. Um, so you've got one person that collects information and they understand what's useful and what's not useful. You know, go back to my GPS example. You know, I've collected 200 metrics, but I know that the useful information for me for, let's say, American football might be accelerations, decelerations, you know, high-end speed, whether that's like, you know, your, your zones four and five and six or your max speed, like they change the direction, IMA if you're using catapult, like they're useful metrics for me, right? The other person, he, they are the person that's like, I'm going to collect everything and anything and see what sticks, right? Mm. The next part is the analysis phase, which I think is done probably the best out of all of the phases, purely because when sports science came through or the advent of sports science and technology came through, who was in the industry? Trainers, physios, strength coaches, right? Maybe not even a physio, maybe like a doctor. And who did all the new age technology get thrown to? The strength coaches or the trainers. And they were like, well, I don't want to look at this technology crap you know i want to coach so what do they do they probably went out and they said uh who knows how to put your hand up if you know how to whip up a mean spreadsheet okay you kid come over here whip up a mean spreadsheet for me right and then as that sort of developed it's gone into okay let's build out our own spreadsheets i build out our own excel databases let's learn how to code all, all these software systems let's do ai blah, blah blah and people have come really really wise to the fact that if they have that skill set they'll get a job and that way in saying that, we've pulled from the, the data science or the software engineering worlds, and these are intelligent people, way smarter than me, right? Um, and they know numbers very, very well. But without sort of, you know, offending anybody, um, not that I care, but, um, you know, a lot of these people don't know sport as well as what other people in the SNC, the medical, know. So they can crunch the numbers really, really well, but they don't have the... Uh, the, the knowledge of the sport and they probably don't have the rapport with the players as well as they should. So they have this set of information and then they skip the next phase, which is, in my opinion, the interpretation of the information you just analysed, and they go straight to the visualisation phase, right, where they're just building a report about what the information says, you know, we went this far, we, 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 tra we traveled uh, this fast and we did this many accelerations or what, this many hits. And a coach looks at that and goes, well, what does this mean to me, right? 
it's a sports science report. I get it. It's useful information, but I don't understand it. But in saying that, without the interpretation of what that information means, like data is, is just numbers without context, right? So you have to have context to the information that you're trying to present and then visualize it in a way that a coach can understand. could be whatever terminology, whatever flashy colors, pictures, whatever, but that's where the interpretation phase comes through. It's like, okay, instead of going, okay, we, we did this many sprints, I want to know is as a result of doing this many sprints, that's helped us achieve X, Y, and Z in practicing games, you know, scoring more points or in, you know, catching, uh, running more efficient routes or whatever it may be, right? And that's sort of how it should go through. And we should ask questions. I think the most important questions are uh, in terms of like data collection, you know, are we getting better? Number one, you know, are we staying healthy? Number two, and is what we're doing have an impact? Or is what we're doing in practice having impact on game day? And if we go through that, that will help us prioritize what we're collecting because now we're starting to, you know, for lack of a better word, like deconstructing the information and, and narrowing, making a narrow focus. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, I think that's really important because I, I agree. I think that's that is the area that we're we're lacking in, isn't it? That's and we've spoke about this a lot because it it becomes that point where you have to get in the mind of the coach, you have to speak that language, and then you have to visually present it to them, don't you? And we spoke about this in um last week or the week before when we were on the phone that yeah. how we how we present that can be a number of different ways but it has to work for the person that you're trying to influence, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. It comes back to the human element, right? So you've got to connect with a person to understand what goes in, you know, through their head and what they like. So one coach might like, you know, red is bad, green is good. Another one like might like a battery or a rev count. Another one might like, well, just give me the cold hard facts. Another one might be like, well, don't show me a report. Tell me it. Like, explain yeah. it to me. Yeah. So there's so many different ways. And, there's, and I got asked the question from a student. I was like, so can you tell me, is there research out there that tells me, you know, what coaches tend to like more than others? I was like, well, there might be research out there, yeah. but – the only way you're going to know what a coach likes is if you actually get to know that person. Yeah. How many personalities are there out there? Oh, there's so many. <laughs> well, if, you, if we relate it to something like the Premier League and we take even the top six clubs, you could argue that every single one of them will probably want something a little bit different. So to put that in a, in a small perspective and to stretch that out on a big scale across football in general, I don't think you can prove that, can you? There's not going to be no. one way. Like that... I think it's so important, like what you said, mm. to, to learn about that person. But they also talk about that. What happens if you're the person you're like this, that's your head coach or manager? What if they don't speak English? Yeah. A different culture, a different language. So there's so many different elements to it. Like we're just assuming, well, we know what's going to go on to an English speaking coach. But what if, particularly in the Premier League, where you might have um, a coach that's, that doesn't have the first language that's English, might be a Spanish or a French or whatever sort of coach, Italian coach. You know, as long as if they and they bring their guy in to translate, right? So that's a whole other element to, you know, the visualization process. So yeah. it can get complicated, but it's it's only complicated because if you don't know how the person ticks, well then you're fighting uphill battle. Definitely. <laughs> now this one's probably going to be my favorite question out of the lot. How in your this is in your experience as well. We see a lot of coaches that go into roles and that are very impactful about what they do. And you also see some coaches that go into roles that sort of slip under the radar a little bit. And you can, you can, and obviously this is very contextual because we're not in day to day seeing exactly what's going on. 
But in your opinion, at the clubs you've been at and the sports you've been involved in, what do you see as being the most important thing for a coach to be impactful and not just yeah. sort of slip under the radar? That's a that's a, a very it's, it's 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 a simple question, but it's a, it's got a complex answer to it, right? Because it depends. <laughs> like, what is your definition of being impactful, right? So, are we looking at the high school level, the collegiate level? Are we looking at the professional level? Like, you know, what does impactful mean? It could just to one person, it could be well. You've made me bigger, faster, stronger. You've helped me, you know, win the Super Bowl or win the Premier League, or you've helped me achieve the M- MVP. Or another side of it could be, well, you've taught me how to be a man, or you've taught me how to be, you know, a better father or a better mother, or you know, the lessons that you've learned from attention to detail or you know, time management has helped me, you know, with my career after sport. Right? Like it could be so many different things, but. Yeah. I think ultimately it comes down to, I think the people that have the real impact are those that impact a player beyond that sport. Right. It's like a more of a personal impact. Like those that have gone, well, you've helped me achieve the heights of sport, but when I retire or when you retire, I can call on you for personal things. I can confide in you in personal things. You know what I mean? And that could be anything from faith. Like I, I'm in Texas and you know, Texans or people from the South are, are you know, very strong with their faith, very religious. It could be, let's, you know, you helped me with, you know, connecting with God or we went and did Bible study together or, you know, we went to church and stuff together. Like that stuff, is very impactful to people. Like how often do you see when a professional comes out, particularly in the States where you have like an NFL player that comes down and they hear about maybe a former trainer or a former coach from high school or college. Yeah, they'll credit their, their NFL strength coach or the NBA strength coach, but they always go back to the lessons they learned through high school or college because that's where they're, they, they've gone from like, a training age of zero and they're, and they're very young. And again, at the same time, they're with the one coach for a good period of time. Whereas in the professional realm, they could have like three or four strength coaches in the, in a space of maybe eight to 10 years. Right. Whereas in college, more often than not, like they have the same strength coach the entire time. So I think, you know, that's probably the difference. A person that doesn't have as much of an impact, maybe someone that's very much an authoritarian. That's like, you know, I when I say jump, you jump. When I say run, you run. Like, you know, I'm going to bring in the, the level of fear and you're only going to respect me because you're scared of me rather than respect me because of, you know, our connections. I think that's probably one. I think we forget a lot of the time, but this is an industry where like a customer service type industry where we provide something to an athlete and you've got to be personable about it, right? The younger the athlete, the more you can have that fear mongering. Um, but as you get into the pros, like they're adults, right? They can tell you where to go. right? And then more often than not, they probably do, you know, I'll piss off. Like I'm not going to listen to you. Let us walk away. Where it doesn't happen as much as a younger age. So, I think you know, knowing your audience, right? Knowing when you can be that hard ass, and knowing when you have to maybe give someone a cuddle. I think they're the ones that, or maybe the tough love, or the fatherly love, or depending on how old you are. Like, 
I could probably give a high school kid, you know, that, that fatherly, friendly, you know, brotherly type love. But if I went into the pros, I'm, you know, I'm 31. So I'm not going to be able to tell, I'm not going to be able to give that fatherly love to say, you know, an, an NFL veteran, right? Mm. Maybe I'm, you know, mid forties, fifties, right? But you just sort of have to understand, you know, when you can pull the trigger, when you have to hold back. I think they're, they're the keys, I think. Yeah. What do you think? What do you think, mate? You talk to us. I think that, I think that's a really interesting point. I think it's everyone can, when you hear, especially people getting to the end of the career speak, I think you're dead right. I think they always bring up a coach that's, um, I mean, I say this and then I think of Sir Alex Ferguson, but at the same time, the class of 92, talk about him because he was at a time where they were young in their career. They were that was at a time where they could be influenced. But I think a lot will go even further back than that, won't they? They'll go yeah. back to like sort of, a, to relate it to sort of the, the football in the UK, to sort of academy ages, because that's a time where you, like you said, they spend a lot of time with them, but also that's where the influence happens probably the most. And then also to flip that, when they do get into the professional game, especially at the top of the professional game, the, the, the um, impact that the player can have on the club, on yourself, if they're not having what you're trying to get across, that they're, they're influential with the club, aren't they? If you're, if you're not influencing a team captain, for example, they could essentially get you out, out of that job. So, oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Like, I think the younger you are, because in America, a lot of people say, oh, I don't want to work in the pros because you can't have as much of an impact. And I think that's a bit false because I think people want to see impact that they can actually physically see. Okay, I get a person from a training age of zero at 18 and I see the physiological you know, development from 18 to 22. So they, they sometimes you see on social media the whole like, um, you know, here my, the before and after pic. Here, here this person was as a freshman and here is this person as a senior. Well, naturally, they're going to be, you know, more muscle tone. They might have, you know, more mass on. So you're going to see a change. But then when you get into the pros, right, yes, they may not be as much of a physical development, but then that's the – the emotional, the psychological, the um, the mental development, right? I think there's more power in that cognitive sense that we as coaches don't touch upon enough because that's then in a messy, like, you know, you're, we're real, especially in the strength and conditioning world, these big, burly men that say, oh, emotional, emotions is like, you know, for girls, you know, it's, it's a wussy type thing, but that's where you connect with people and that you can make that impact. And I think it's at the crux of what I said before, like it's, it's not a sexy thing. Like you can, we can talk a whole hour, two hours about the human element, right? It's not sexy. People want to go, okay, how do I improve my RSI? How do I improve my max speed? How do I, uh, you know, improve my max squad? That's sexy because if you know how to do that, well, then, yeah, it looks good on paper and I can go to the gym and or the, the owner or the coach and go, hey, well, at the start of the season, this player was squatting, let's say, 170 for one rep back squat. But at the end of it, he was squatting 220. So see, I added 50 kilos onto that. But the player could, number one, still be dog shit on the field, right? And hate, and hate your guts and, have, and, want, and want out, you know what I mean? It's like, well... I would rather that player obviously still be as strong, don't get me wrong, if it's worthy of that strength to be important to his role in the sport. But more about wanting to have that emotional connection, say, well, you know what, you know, I, I need you as a coach, but also might need you as a friend because, you know, 
FEMA missus might be going through some, something at the moment, or I am scared shitless because I've got my first kid on the way, you know, or I need that sort of stuff. And I think by working with like um, a strength coach at the Rabbitohs, right? Sam was Sean Edwards. He was like, he had my back. He was like my father figure at the Rabbitohs. Uh, another strength coach at, at Baylor, uh, Ken Johnston, very well known in NFL circles. Same sort of thing. He was in his 60s, a bit more of that sort of wise man, older man, you know, uh, you know, father figure as well that could just sort of, you could talk personally about stuff. I think it's so important. Yeah. So important. I mean, put it this way. If you speak to a player about something like that, like having the first child or dealing with a breakup about or whatever it is, and then you speak to them about developing speed or improving their acceleration, what are they going to remember in like five, ten years' time? <laughs> exactly, like, yeah. I think, that, I think that sums it up for me. Like there's only one answer. So I, I, I fully agree. I think the human side is so, so important. But I, I honestly believe that that's a skill as well. And it's one that I think some people – and I don't know whether you can, I think you can get better at it, but I think some people are just so good naturally about developing relationships. And that might come from previous sort of um, experiences, mm. but then some people struggle with it so much as well, don't they, on, mm. on building that. They can have all the knowledge in the world, but they struggle so much on getting that buy-in, but having that relationship with someone. Oh, for sure. And I think, again, it could be, you could argue and say, well, it's their fault. It's just in their makeup. They're just, they're introverted. They don't know how to connect. But I think what a lot of the practitioners in the field, and I'm going to blanket this across, right? Okay. I bring back to ACU, my undergrad. The reason why, like, so I didn't get the marks that I needed to go into the course that I wanted, right? It was, I wanted to go to the University of New South Wales or the University of Sydney and do my exercise science uh, bachelor's there. But, you know, missed out on that. It was a bit more of a lax sort of last year of high school for me. And I just sort of rode the, you know, rode the wave and didn't do as well my marks that I need to. But it was probably, a, in hindsight, a good thing because then I went to ACU. It was a lesser-known university at the time. It's not, not as big as it is now, right? But the course was out, out Western Sydney and they encouraged you to get out in the field, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't think enough... And not just placement, because placement's one thing, but it puts you in situations where you have to uh, – there, there was literally I, – I, I shit you not, like there were literally subjects like coaching subjects or here, we're playing bocce today or we're playing this sport or we're teaching, you know, primary school kids this sport today. Like literally, like, I, I, I'm, I'm not kidding. That's what we did to some. Like, sometimes, like, you know, there was other sports, like other subjects, sorry, like, you know, we're going to learn how to lift weights today. Like, literally, that's what it was. And people might laugh and they go, oh, that's stupid. But it gets you in those environments that you want to actually work in that's practical. Like, I'm not going to learn how to lift weights by reading a textbook, right? I'm going to be going out there and doing it for myself, right? I don't think there's enough courses around the world that encourage the practicality of things and going out in the field. It's too much like we're sitting behind a desk, we're reading reading theory and then when it comes to applying that theory into practice we understand well hey that actually doesn't work and then when that doesn't work we're like well that's all my tools in my kit bag what do i do now i think there could be better things be learned but again i understand i get you like you know you can just sometimes tell if if there's a person that's meant to be a strength coach or not um, you know, yelling very loudly doesn't make you an impactful strength coach. Um, but speaking clearly and having that personal connection definitely does. Yeah, brilliant. 
I wanted to ask as well, because I know we've talked about the sports that you've been involved in and you haven't directly been involved at a football club. And obviously by football, I mean soccer. Um, I wanted to get your views on, from the sort of outside, looking at the physical preparation in general of soccer players, what, what your views were on it. Because I know, obviously, you know Tony, you, you know Dave. Um, they, they've been deeply involved in football for a number of years. But I wanted to get your views on it as well, just to sort of see where the standard fits amongst other sports. Yeah, um, I, again, there's all there's so many assumptions about football, so I don't want to make those assumptions because I'm, unless I'm sort of like, yeah, I, right, I visited all these uh, football teams, you know, visited Tony at Man United, um, Joe Club took me through Chelsea, spent a lot of time with a uh, mate of mine, Nicholas Coleman, when he was at uh, Crystal Palace. So I've been through a lot of those Premier League teams and spent a bit of time with them. But again, it's, it's the difference between getting a snapshot and getting the full picture, right? So I don't want to make too many assumptions, but from what I've seen personally and the, and the things I've been told by those that I've gone and visited or even stories I've heard from, from Dave and Tony and other people in the field, it, it depends on the organisation, right? So you could have an organisation that's like, well, we want to look at the weight room as a potential recruiting tool, right? That's fine. But that's what happens in the U.S. in college. The, you know, this fancy weight room. Players come in and go, wow, this is amazing. You know, that's, I want to come here because I'm going to be at a club with the best facilities, right? So that's one that I can see happening. I can also see that the S&C culture, like, for example, in the States and in Australia, the S&C culture is massive because we play sports that require that S&C culture. You know, you've got your rugby league, rugby union, to a degree, Aussie rules, you've got American football over here. Like, it's it's part of the culture because those sports are big contact, burly sports, right? Football, on the other hand, obviously – is a less of a con. It's still contact, but obviously much less of a contact. You probably say the other sports are collision sports, and football is more of a contact. But well, it doesn't. Have- Sorry, Michael. I was just going to say with that, I think it's fair to say that that is getting less of a contact sport as well. Oh yeah, you could argue. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, um, but you could say that the SNC culture is probably not as ingrained in the UK as maybe what the sports science and the medical and the analytics culture is. Right, so that could play a part. But I, I've, I've, I think the biggest factor when it comes to football, SNC and physical performance is the fact that when you've got the best players in the world, right, they're generally, I wouldn't say all the time, but they're generally the, the players that are playing the most games. And, you know, it could be, you know, making, um, you know, Champions League final, FA Cup final, League Cup final. They basically, their games are essentially their physical performance, right? So when you've got a talented team like Man United, Liverpool, Chelsea, right, and you go up against a team that's on the lower end of the spectrum, uh, maybe like currently I think it's like Sheffield United, um, it's Burnley. Um, just say those two teams because I don't know the other one that's on, that's on the relegation zone. But those teams that don't have that talent or resources, um, if those teams went up against the Man Uniteds and the Chelsea's and the Liverpool's talent for talent, they would lose every time, right? So they have to find ways to beat that team. And more often than not, the lower teams have a more SNC culture, more of an SNC culture, because their way of beating those teams that have a better talent is to outwork them, right? So I, I think that 
the, 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 the teams that with less talent, they have to work harder to keep up with the teams that have more talent. And I believe um, from talking to um, Tom Joel and lots of, uh, I spoke a little bit with Matt Reeves, but mostly my, Tom's my, my guy at uh, Leicester, a really good dude, been at Leicester, I think, for like well, six-plus years. It could be more than that, but, uh, you know, be on the safe side. Um, but, yeah, he basically said in the time when they were going up through the championship and even in their first season in the Premier League, they just they outworked every team. Yeah, they sat back and they were on the counterattack, right? But defending is hard work, right? Yeah. You know? defending chasing the ball and then you got to go on counter-attack and so yeah it was a mixture of them you know hard outworking team but also you know you get a bit of luck when you get a bit of luck don't get me wrong but i think that's what happens you've got to find ways so the teams that have less talent they have to work harder because you know how are they going to beat the other team that's got a bigger talent right um and then also it gets muddied with the wars where the bigger the team you go people bring their own entourage right and so then it can get muddied, and that could be the future of SNC in the Premier League. I, I don't know. I'm just speculating. It could be. Um, but I think that's sort of – I don't think it's 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 bad as it is. People need to understand, well, yeah, if you're playing 60 games of football a year, well, do you really need the additional physical stuff? Uh, maybe not because is there time for it? I don't know. It's hard. Like, you know, I remember – speaking to um, Barry Hamilton at uh, Manchester City and he was saying well Aguero they had a season where they were successful and I can't remember what it was but like they had a season where they, were, they won the Premier League but they had also gone quite far in all the other cups and then it was a um, uh, it was like a regional year like it was a, it was a Copa year so then he went and played for his country for a month and a bit and went to camps by the time he came back his preseason was like basically non-existent. One week, then you're on again. So it's like, well, you know, if you like that. So I think people need to sort of calm a bit down in the football world and go, okay, at least, yes, SNC has its place. You know what I mean? You know, but it's never going to be at the levels of rugby league, rugby union, American football. So um, maybe, maybe it will. I don't know. But uh, I, don't, I don't think you're doing too bad in football. Let's, let's just say that. It could, be, it could be better, but let's be honest, it could be better everywhere. Yeah. But, well, it's just, yeah, like, I think you pointed you pointed out all the areas that we need to look at, though, and that's that's fair enough. That's why I wasn't expecting you to slander it or say it's amazing. I think it's just important to look at context in that as well. You just spoke about the future of, sport, of strength and conditioning or S and C, um, future of data collection and sports science. Like, what's your views on that? Where do you think things are going to go going forward? I tell you where I'd like it to go. Um, I think Tony Strawberry hit the nail on the head a little while back when he said that we've gone too far away from the generalists and we've gone and become specialists. So when I was um, interning at the semi-professional level with um, the rugby union, rugby league teams, I was the, even, oh, I could say that I was at the Rabbitohs, I was a generalist too, but mostly when you're in a, in a team that doesn't have, you know, semi-professional, you have like, say, one staff or two staff in the, in the performance. But I was like a strength coach. I was like the ankle strapper. I was um, nutritionist. You know, I was a psychologist. I was a scientist. And my boss, at the, or my mentor, 
Nathan Parnham, phenomenal uh, practitioner, mind you, um, he was exactly the same thing. He was sort of leading it. And he was probably more than that. He was probably a high performance manager. He was probably assistant coach and performance analyst. Like he was, so you've got to wear many hats. Doesn't mean you have to know everything about everything. But I think like that's where I'd like it to go, where sports scientists have a knowledge or underst- at least an understanding of strength and conditioning, right? Yeah. I say when I came to America, I wanted to learn more of S&C skill set. Like, I was a pretty decent S&C in Australia, but the, the culture in America is more about like, well, it's a, it's a more involved S&C coach, right? And you have to be because if you're in the weight room with potentially 100 student athletes, right, that's a lot going on. So you have to have the ability to be able to cue short, sharp, on the go, on the fly, maybe three, four, five, six, whatever, at a time. You're just basically walking through the weight room and going and seeing everything, right? Whereas in Australia, it's been more lax. Like, you know, sometimes you have a strength coach in the corner with his arms folded and just sort of seeing and and learning. But that's because the, the athletes tend to want to be left alone, right? They don't want the whole every second of the day, you're cueing them, you're yelling at them, you're going, yeah, let's go. Like, they don't want that. They might tell you to piss off. It's annoying. Whereas in the States, they love that stuff, right? Um, so I think coming up to America and learning the additional skills of what it's like to be a coach in that environment, it's helped me understand it more, even better than when I was in Australia. So I think every sports scientist should learn how to coach or at least get in the weight room and feel it. I just don't think they are. I think we're too, too specialized, we're too data-centric. Like now we've gone from like, you know, you're a sports scientist, but now you're a data scientist and now you're a you're research analyst and all these other fancy-ass types which make no damn sense it's just for their own benefit to make them feel better about themselves you know what i mean like disregarding what they're doing you know because they're really great but i think the unicorn of the industry would be a sports scientist that's also a data scientist that also has a really good understanding or can coach don't think there's anyone out there that could cover all three bases or maybe even add the rehabilitation to it because essentially rehab is just S&C for injured athletes, right? So I don't think – and also have the personable ability to be able to connect with all those three, four different areas. So there's probably some people out there like that, but I doubt that – if you could say that you're an expert-level data scientist, sports scientist, strength coach, and rehabilitation, you're on you're – on, you're high. I want some of that what you're on because <laughs> you can't. You can't be an expert in all those four areas. You can be an expert in sports science and have, you know, a competency in strength and conditioning and um, the data science. And the, but you can't be an expert in all four areas. But I think, you know, less specialization, less, you know, we're, we're too, a lot of people are too one-dimensional. Um, and that's where I'd like it to go, more human element, as, again, I've harped on about it. I think where it will go, if we're not careful, is that sports science will be replaced with just pure data analytics. You know, when relying too much on the data, making the, the, the decisions for us, which I'm hopeful it doesn't go that way. But with all this, you know, like I said, the roles of data scientists and, you know, analysts and research analysts and all that sort of stuff, that might work in the tactical and technical world, but in the performance world, it, it won't. So 
again, mate, to be honest, who knows where the world, where the future will go? You know what I mean? Like right now we're not being respected as sports scientists because no one knows what the hell we do. You ask a GM or a head coach, what does a sports scientist do? They will probably say they do the catapult. So what is the cat? It's, it's GPS, guys. Come on. It's, you know, um, but it's like that's probably what they'll say. Yeah. Um, or they might say be a pan, be a thorn in my side and give me data that I have no idea what it means. They could say that too. But um, I, I've got a positive outlook. I think, you know, we can go in a positive direction. We can't use sports science as a vehicle for our own personal gain. we got to band together and, and help it move forward. But it's not going to be an easy thing, that's for sure. Awesome. No, we're on record for uh, well, on track for a record length show here. So uh, I told you I could ramble. And I knew that was going to be the case. So we need to get you on for more because I feel like there's loads of stuff that we've probably either gone through quite quickly or not even covered at all. So we need to get yeah. one sorted. But Michael, we'll go on to um, on to our quick fire questions. So the first one: Who were some of the biggest influences on your career? Number one, family. I think, um, you know, they've had a massive, massive influence just how I've been brought up in terms of like just morals and whatnot. Uh, Nathan Parnham gave me my first big shot in terms of being able to give me the confidence to, you know, get out in, the, in there and actually realize that I'm actually good at what I do. Um, and then, you know, definitely Dave and Dave Hancock, Tony Strudwick. But I think those people that have that impact on me it's not because of their x's and o's what they can do it's more about them as a human being you know the, the ability that they took on a kid that at the time they didn't know if we they didn't know me from a bar of soap and they gave me the opportunity and they gave me the respect to give me the time of day that speaks volumes to me when you're working at the highest level of sport like they have and they can they can do that to a young kid that just wants to learn and the next one what would you say your biggest strength is as a coach some people might laugh when I say this, but I believe it's my personality, my ability to connect with people, I think. I hope so. Hopefully, I haven't got people calling me out going, you're a dead sad joke of a bloke. But uh, <laughs> I like to believe that I can get along with people. I think that uh, is a bit of a, is a big, big strength of mine. Awesome. And then what would you say is the best CPD that you've done? And I know recently you might be stretching it, but what's yeah. the best CPD that stands out for you? chewing the fat with people like yourself you know i think uh i learned just by getting out there and talking and meeting people like yeah you can watch a uh listen and watch you know, uh, documentaries and read articles and that sort of stuff but i think you know i'm I just, as you probably realize maybe you haven't but i'm quite a personable you know that's my approach i like to talk to people i like to learn from experiences I, whenever i talk to people i like hey tell me your story because i don't care what you know about the x's and o's i want to know your story about how you got to where you are and why because that tells me a lot about who you are as a person and why you do what you do Brilliant. And then the final one, mate, for two two people. So what would you say the most important trait to have is for a coach, but then also for a player? I think we've probably already touched on this, haven't we? Like connecting with people, knowing your audience, um, communication, like how poorly do we all communicate? You know, we can never communicate enough. Um You've got to have the drive and the ambition to succeed. Get out of your comfort zone. Don't be a yes man. Um, you know, continue to push the envelope. Uh, don't be scared of what you believe in, you know, and, and protect what you believe in with, you know, aggressive intent, if you will. But, yeah, there there's some pretty cool areas that I think all people, all coaches should have. 
And then what about a player as well? We're very similar, but most importantly, understand that their body is essentially their livelihood. Their body is their money, I like to say to a lot of the athletes. They don't understand that, yeah, it's a team sport, but by, you know, looking after themselves physically, mentally, emotionally, um, you know, all the other, once you do that, all the other aspects of communication and drive ambition and ability to ask questions to improve and all that sort of stuff, it just sort of takes care of itself, right? But they do need help in doing that. So I think it's important that they're, to be able to achieve all that, yes, know what's important to you as your body. Without your body, you can't succeed. But then once you get that right, then you can get your mind right and you can get all the soft skills in order. Hey, this was fun. This is really good. I really enjoyed it. I think there was, honestly, I think there's loads more we could go into. So we need to get another one sorted. But thanks a lot for coming on, mate. I really appreciate it. Uh, thank you all for tuning man. Like I said, it's always cool to chew the fat. Uh, hopefully I haven't put anyone to sleep. Um, so if, if if people are you know wanting to do another one, let's do another one. I'm always happy to do that. Awesome. And just finally, before you go, if people want to reach out, if they've got questions or they just want to follow your work or they want to reach out about Apollo maybe, where would you direct them? Uh, so I've got, uh, I've got to think about my Twitter handles now. The Twitter handle, Michael Macri 89 um, You know, really great, thoughtful uh, <laughs> handle there. I think uh, my Instagram is uh, Michael Macri uh, HP Coach on Instagram. Again, I have to send you these so you can find me. And then my, you can email me at michael.macrid.outlook.com. Anytime, always happy to reach out and talk. Perfect, mate. Thanks a lot. And we'll catch up soon. Appreciate you, man. Awesome. Thanks, mate. Top man. Big thank you to Michael for coming on the podcast and giving up his time. I really appreciate him coming on. It was a great chat and you could tell by the length of this podcast. I've potentially the one of the long, longest podcasts we've done, but I think there's loads of great information covered in it. Go and search for Michael. Give him a follow on social media. He's on Twitter at MichaelMacri89. And also go and give Apollo a follow as well. So they're also on Twitter at ApolloV2 underscore. In terms of takeaways for me, there was plenty in this one again. Um, he used a, a, a phrase early on where he said about a million mistakes, but a million lessons. And I think that's really important. Again, something we spoke about on the podcast a lot is making those mistakes, but also the main thing about making mistakes is learning from those mistakes. He talks about the, the KISS principle, uh, keep it simple, stupid. And that's um, I think a lot of people can relate to that. We, he spoke about being a sponge as well. So taking in, that was something he spoke about early on in his career, taking in so much information. I think that's something that, especially young practitioners, but also practitioners of any age and experience level, we need to make sure that we're taking in plenty of information um, as well as putting out great information as well. Being thick-skinned, really important in, in the industry. Obviously, the, the hiring and firing nature, especially in football, um, in terms of job security, I think it's it's really important to have that thick skin. And then he spoke about being a yes man. And this is a really, I think this is an important part of this podcast because there's, there's ways and means of going around this. We don't just want to be someone that is seen to cause disputes or arguments in meetings or whatever it is and just be disputing for the sake of it. But at the same time, we don't want to be seen to agreeing to everything that's being put out there we want to have our opinion we want to objective opinions and I think that's really important and when we're talking about coaches that truly make an impact I think that's a really important point point. 
Talking of making impact, he spoke about making impact beyond the sport as well with players, which I think is a huge part of our role. And then also he, he mentioned towards the end about um, our industry as a whole becoming too much of a specialist and rather than a generalist. And we need to be making sure that we're covering a number of different roles in what we do because that is a big part of a lot of roles of sports science or strength conditioning right now, which again, a lot of people have spoke about on the podcast. So loads of takeaways in this one for me. They were just a few that I jotted down, but I'd be really interested to hear yours on this one. So please get in touch. You can either drop us a message on social media, drop us a DM, or you can send us an email, mail at footballfitfed.com, or just simply give us a, a retweet or a share on Instagram or Twitter. And just post your, your, your takeaways on there because it'd be great to get a bit of discussion around what you took away from the podcast. And I know Michael will be keen as well to hear what you took away from it too. So please give us a share and um, yeah, get this podcast out to as many practitioners as possible. But huge thank you again to Michael uh, for giving up his time and coming on the podcast. A massive thank you to all you guys for listening and sharing the podcast and helping us grow it. And I'm really looking forward to bringing you up the get the exciting guests that we've got over the next few weeks as well. So stay tuned for that. But big thank you again for listening. And I'll speak to you again in next week in episode 126.